Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As you find your way there, I would uh, remind you that back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapter 14, uh, there's this very interesting account of a day in the life of Moses. And uh, Moses was having a rather rough day. Uh, The spies had come back from scouting out the land, and out of the 12 that went, 10 came back, and they gave a bad report. They were telling all the people of Israel that the people in the land were giants, that the people in the land were impossible to defeat, that, that, that there was nothing that they could do. It was impossible for the people of God to go into that promised land and, and, and defeat the enemies. And they began to make the people fearful. And the people began to doubt God. They began to grumble against Moses and Aaron. And yet there were two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, and and they said, no, we believe what the Lord has told us. We believe that he will fight for us. We, We believe that we can go into the land and we can take it. And the response of the people to Joshua and Caleb was that they wanted to stone them. Now, as a result of this, Moses intercedes because God says, well, if that's the way the people are going to be, we're just going to wipe out this whole people and we'll start over again with you, Moses. And Moses goes before the Lord, he intercedes for the people, and eventually God relents, but he says, of all of these people, because of their faithlessness, because of their fear, they're going to die in the wilderness. Their bodies are going to pile up in the wilderness. And only Joshua and Caleb are going to be allowed to enter into the promised land. You see, there's a great risk in doubting God. There's a great risk in being fearful. There's a great risk of not believing God when he says that he is for you and will go before you and will provide for you. That's the big idea in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. So let me read that so we can prepare our hearts for our time in God's Word this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. This is God's Word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is God's word. God is for us. We don't fear. As believers, we are not to be crippled by fear. We don't fear death. We don't fear death at the hand of a virus or a vaccine. We don't fear the government, no matter how corrupt or evil. We don't fear circumstances, because whatever we need in terms of food, shelter, clothing will be given to us by our Father who knows our needs before we even ask. We are not afraid of economic conditions or a crisis or a collapse or a reset. We are not, in short, to be fearful of anything. We are not to be a people identified by or identified with fear because nothing can even get to us unless it is for our good. That was the whole teaching in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Everything is working together for our good. Therefore, we ought not to fear. And Paul is going to continue that argument here in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. He begins by saying, what do we say then about these things? What do we say about everything that we have learned He says, who can be against us? He says, what could God possibly withhold from us since he has given us his own son? These are questions that he's going to ask and then answer in the rest of this chapter. Now, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to go through Romans 8, 31 to 39. So I'm going to do part one this morning. We'll do part two next week. But for this week, I just want to look in at Romans 8, 31 and 32. And I want to show you three elements of our assurance. Three elements of our assurance. If there's one doctrine that I could preach on every single week and be quite happy, it would be the doctrine of the assurance that we have in the gospel. The doctrine that was laid out for us even last week where we see that everyone whom God has chosen, he has also called, and whom he has called, he has also justified, and whom he has justified, he has also glorified. The unbreakable golden chain of the providence of redemptive history, that all those whom he has set his electing love upon will see the glorification that is promised to them. And if I can do anything each week, it would be to assure you of that, that the very character and nature of God is at stake were that promise not to be kept. And therefore, we have nothing to fear. And so when we look at our assurance here, I want to see it built here on these two verses by looking at three things in particular. Number one, our conclusion. Number two, our claim. Number three, our confidence, our conclusion, our claim, and our confidence. What do we conclude from what we've learned up until this point in Romans 8 and really all the way in the book of Romans? What is our claim? What do we hold on to? What do we say is true because because God says it's true, and I'm going to claim it? And then finally, where's our confidence? Where do we really put our confidence so that we know when we fear that we are not really putting our confidence where it belongs. Our conclusion, our claim, and our confidence. Let's look at that first one. We'll call this our conclusion. It begins here in Romans 8.31 with a very important statement made by Paul when he says, what then shall we say to these things? Paul begins the section with the end in mind. He says, what are we going to say to these things? 
What are the these things? It's a very generic way of approaching it. It's very vague. It's very general. What are these things? Well, I would argue that it's really everything that he's covered so far in the book of Romans, but especially in Romans chapter 8. This is the concrete, settled logic of Paul behind all of the assurances that we have. What are the things that we remember when we go back in this chapter? Well, to begin with, we remember that we are free from the condemnation and the slavery of sin and death and hell. We saw that back at the beginning of the chapter. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of the things we remember. That's, that's the thing we call to mind. That is what gives us great confidence in him. That's the conclusions that we settle the whole foundation of our belief upon. Number two, we are indwelt with the Spirit of Christ. We saw that in chapter 8, verse 9. We are indwelt with the Spirit of Christ. We have to make that conclusion in our own mind, and we have to settle it in our own minds, that, that our assurance of ultimate glorification comes from His promise and His Spirit that He gives to us, so that we can claim Abba Father, so that our spirit testifies with His Spirit that we are children of God. Well, we are free from condemnation, we are indwelt with the Spirit. Number three, we are adopted as sons. We are adopted as sons of God. We, we are like those put into the very top position in the order of the family. Uh, we are all number one sons, firstborn sons, cherished sons. Whether you're male or female, you are elevated to that place, equally with all the other believers, into that place in the original context of the firstborn son who received from the Father, the special blessings and, and the special care and the special attention and even the special inheritance. Number four, we're promised a new body and a new world. We saw that in Romans 8, 23, a new body and a new world. That this is not the end. This, this body is not the end and this world is not the end. This body is fading away and we all know for sure one day it's going to die and we're going to be given a new one. This world is also crumbling and fading away, and one day we're going to get a new one. In fact, you are just as assured to get a new world as you are to get a new body. And you're going to live forever on that new earth, in that new body. This is one of the promises that we are reminded of, and it gives us a concrete assurance that everything that happens in this life, regardless of how challenging it is, will fade away in comparison to the glory that awaits us when the new body and the new earth is given. So we're given freedom from condemnation, indwelt with the Spirit of Christ, adopted as sons of God. We're promised a new body and a new world. Two more, we are prayed for by the Spirit. Romans 8, 26, we're prayed for by the Spirit. Even in times where we don't know what to do, don't know what to say, those, those Spirit-provoked groanings are, are the very groanings that are then taken by the Spirit and presented before the Father as prayers perfectly uttered in accordance with His will. So that whatever is asked is fulfilled. And then finally, we are elect to be glorified. We are elect to be glorified. We saw that in chapter 8, 28 to 30. That those whom he foreknew, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And that means that all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
That's the, the these things that he wants to draw our attention to here at the beginning of this section of, of Romans chapter 8. That is our conclusion. And that is really the basis for the next point, and that is our claim. We see that in the next part of verse 31, and that's our claim. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I mentioned Joshua earlier, and there's this fascinating um, account in Joshua's life in in Joshua 5, verses 13 to, to 15, where there's a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This is when the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, is revealed to people before the incarnation, and he stands before Joshua as a warrior. And this warrior gets Joshua's attention. And Joshua says to this warrior, Are you for us, or are you for our enemies? And the warrior, Jesus himself, answers with one Hebrew word, no. Are you for us, or are you against us? No. One of my friends puts it this way, I like it. I told him I was going to steal it and use it one day in a sermon. But I'll give him credit. His name is Bobby Scott. He's a pastor up in L.A. But he said it this way. He said when God showed up and he talked to Joshua, Joshua wants to know whose side he's on. And he describes it this way. He says, God shows up and he's not there to take sides. He's there to take over. He's not there to take sides. He's there to take over. It's not about whether this person's right or that person's right. It doesn't matter what side you're on. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. It doesn't matter what party you're affiliated with. There's a right and there's a wrong, and if God chooses it, it's right. And he says, I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. And so when he shows up, he puts Joshua essentially in his place. You see, Joshua thinks, well, you know, we're God's chosen people. We're God's nation. You must be here for us. And I believe that one of the things we learn from this story is that when God shows up, realize God is on God's side. That's the side you want to be on. That's the side you want to be on. Just because he's for us doesn't mean he's about us. He's not here to take our side. When Paul says that God is for us, you're not allowed to take that then and claim it for everything you decide to do. You can't just say, well, I'm a believer, so God must be on my side. I believe a certain thing about a certain subject, so God must agree with me. God is not here to take sides. Just because he's for you doesn't mean he's about you. So what does it mean for him to be for us? He means that he is here for our good, that all things are working out for good. That's what it means for him to be for you. It means that he cannot be against you. And even if your circumstances seem more difficult than you can possibly bear, we can say, as the hymn writer told us this morning, that whatever my God ordains is right. That even though he sends us through some extremely difficult circumstances, it is never an indication that he has left us or forsaken us. In fact, even through those circumstances, he is working in us and through us and for us. Now notice here it begins by saying, if, if he is for us. Does that seem to suggest that there is a question as to whether or not he is? The answer is no. 
In fact, the way this is set up, it's very clear that by saying if in the original, he's actually meaning since. It's a guarantee. Since he is for us, it is certain. He is only going to do what benefits us. He is only going to do what is good for us. He sets the course for us. Psalm 118, 5 and 6 tells us that. Look over at Psalm 118. The title that is given to the psalm in my Bible is not inspired. The translators put it there, but I think it's appropriate. It says, his steadfast love endures forever. Why would they say that? Well, just read the psalm and you'll find out. But I'd love to go down to 118 verses 5 and 6 where he says this, Out of my distress I called on Yahweh, and Yahweh answered me and set me free. Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me? Yahweh is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. How do you make that claim? How, how, how do you and I make that claim? We can only make that claim if we are abiding by his word and his will. And if we do, and if we obey, and if we follow him, and if we take him at his word, and if we put our trust in him, then we can say with certainty that we will not fear anything that man can do to us because God is for us. So, Paul continues, if he is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the answer might be a little bit of a surprise to you because, truthfully, the answer is everyone. Everyone. I mean, you just have to think about the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a start. The world is against us. The flesh is against us. The devil is against us. Everything is against us, and they're against us all the time. So what does Paul mean? How can Paul say that if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, it sounds as if he is suggesting that no one can, when in reality, everyone is. That's because we're not really understanding what he means by the phrase, who can be against us. When he says that, what he really means is that nothing is against us that is greater than he who is for us. He is saying, because God is for us, who would have any hope of being against us? Who would ever dare to be against us? Not because of us, not because of our power, but because of the one who is for us, the one who stands behind us, the one who defends us and fights for us. One day on the playground, there was a fight. For those of you who have gone to school in the last maybe 15, 20 years, that's where kids are allowed to go outside and fight each other. That's what public school used to be like. Every week, there would be one at least, usually on Friday afternoon. It's been working their way up to it all week long. And then finally, the day arrives. It's time for the fight. And everybody makes a circle around these two boys who are going to fight. And the boys get into it. And one boy punches the other boy and he drops down to the ground and it's over. And the boy goes home beaten and humiliated. But he harbors this resentment about the boy who knocked him down. And so he resolves that next week I am going to beat him. 
And so, for the whole week, there are rumors about this impending rematch, and then finally, the day occurs when they need to have it, and so they get out there Friday afternoon, the crowd forms, everybody is around these two boys, the same two step into the center, and it's going to happen again, and everybody knows what the outcome of the fight is going to be. The other boy is much stronger, he's going to knock him down again, it's over before it begins. However, at the time of the fight, the victor from the previous match steps into the ring and he is about to give the boy what he deserves for setting up this rematch, and then he stops. Puts his fist down, turns around and walks away. Why? Well, it's not because the boy himself was any bigger, any stronger, or any more fearsome. It was because this week the boy's brother came with him, and his brother is very big and very strong and very fearsome, and was standing right behind him. When God is for us, who can be against us? It's not our strength, it's not our power, it's not our wisdom. It's the fact that he's standing behind us, and even the devil who is wiser than us and more powerful than us and could destroy us if he wanted to sees the one who is behind us and defending us and protecting us, and he knows there is no hope. Who can be against us? John 3.20 says that God is greater than even our own hearts. You know, external forces are one thing, but wouldn't you agree that one of the most challenging enemies you have is your own heart, your own conscience, your own mind, your own memory, your own regrets. And he says that the one who is in us is greater than our own self-condemning hearts. He is the one who reminds us when we condemn ourselves that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That when Satan hurls his accusations against us, he is the one who stands in the gap to say, no, I have forgiven those sins once and for all. John 4, 4 says that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The world, the flesh, the devil, your own heart, nothing can stand against him. So when he says who can be against us, he does not mean, well, obviously no one. What he means is that no one can overcome us because of the one who is for us. How do we apply that? Let me give you some suggestions. How do you apply what it means to have God for you? How do you receive from him that protection? Well, number one, we prepare. We prepare. How do you prepare? You prepare, I would recommend, by at least to begin with every day praying that God would clothe you in his armor. In his armor. If you're ever wondering about where to start in your morning prayers, start with what scripture teaches. Start with praying scripture. Catherine and I were talking about this a little bit yesterday. How wonderful it is when people simply use the scriptures as a guide for their prayers. You you heard it already this morning from Psalm 56. It's appropriate to pray God's words back to him, to pray the inspired scriptures back to him, to, to pray the Psalms back to him. The Psalms especially are filled with so many laments, so many challenges even to God. In fact, some of the things that you read in the Psalms, you say to yourself, man, I would never say that. I'm just quoting David. I would never say, God, you've forsaken me, you've forgotten me, you've abandoned me. I remember talking to a man one time, came into my office and he was very angry with me because I was praying scripture in the services. And he said, unless I stop praying scripture in the services, unless I stop praying God's word back to him as if it was some sort of condescending thing, then he and his wife were going to leave the church. And so, 
I said, well, I guess this is the last time we're going to see each other. We pray Scripture. One of the things that I love to do first thing in the morning before I even get out of bed is to pray this very thing, that the Lord would surround me with that belt of truth. You remember the believer's armor, right? The belt of truth. The belt of truth, by the way, was not some little thin piece of leather that kept your pants up. The belt of truth was a a belt like what the Roman soldiers wore. It was a very thick leather apron, essentially, that went around you and it covered you really from neck to the thighs. That belt of truth. May everything that surrounds me today be truthful. May everything I think about or hear be truthful. May what I allow into my mind be truthful. You realize that there are so many places we can go to ingest error and falsehood and lies. I'm not going to get pure truth by scrolling through Twitter. I'm not going to get truth by looking at Facebook. I'm not going to get truth by reading a lot of media outlets. I'm not going to get truth by listening to slanted radio programs. I'm going to get truth by reading the Word, absorbing the Word, meditating on the Word. You wonder why sometimes you're so worked up and so agitated and so anxious. It's because you've been doing nothing but feeding yourself with things that are not true. Pray that you would be surrounded with the protection of truth. Then the breastplate of righteousness the breastplate of justification, the truth of your justification that nothing can get at you, that your heart is protected, that your organs are protected, that your very spiritual life is protected in Christ. It's his righteousness that you're clothed in, that you're covered by, not your own. Uh, Your feet need to be firmly planted in the truth of the gospel. The way you don't slide around, the way you don't trip, the way you don't stumble is to have your feet firmly rooted in the gospel. Remind yourself of it every day. The belt, the breastplate, the shoes. He also says you've got a shield. That shield is the shield of faith. It's the thing that protects you from the flaming javelins and spears that the devil is launching at you all the time. There's this beautiful picture in the famous book Pilgrim's Progress where Christian is making his way along and as he is considering what it is that he would have God do Uh, in terms of obeying God and following God, uh, he is being constantly assaulted with these arrows that are being shot at him from the devil. Look, you're going to deal with that all the time in your life, a constant barrage of assaults and attacks. That shield of faith is there to protect you. The helmet of salvation is next. That's what protects your head, your most vital part of your body, from being crushed under the weight of the sword that the devil would bring down to split it in two causing you to doubt your salvation, causing you to doubt whether or not God will really persevere you till the end. And then, of course, the only way that you fight back, the only way you defend yourself, the only way that you are able in full and perfect truth to combat those lies is with the sword of the Spirit. That is the Word of God. We prepare ourselves. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation in the Word. But more than that, the idea that no one can be against us should settle in our minds because it is God who ultimately prevails. It is his will that ultimately wins. Our claim then is his power over the outcome of our lives and the conclusion that all of it is for our good. And yet in reality, trouble comes. I need to remind you of that. Trouble does come. If he is for us, who can be against us? The answer, everybody. Persecution comes. Trials come. Tribulation comes. The apostles, most of them were were martyred We read in Revelation about the souls of those under the altar crying out for the vengeance against their own blood as they were martyred during the tribulation. Death comes. Deception comes. Mark 13, 
14 to 23, an amazing section, but in there, Jesus says that the deception is going to get so incredibly great that if it were not for God's preserving power, even the elect would be led astray. Jesus said that we would be persecuted, but he reminds us of the power that stands ready at our defense. One of my favorite examples of that comes in the Old Testament when Elisha is discovered hiding in the city of Dotham. And the troops are sent to get him because the king wants him dead. And a servant comes to Elisha and he says to Elisha, essentially, we're doomed. He says, look around, we're surrounded. There's no escape. It's over this time. They're going to lay siege to the city and they're going to kill us. And I love Elijah's prayer. Elisha says, Lord, would you open up his eyes? And in this remarkable narrative in 2 Kings 6, verses 13 to 17, God opens up the eyes of the servant. And behind all of the armies of man stand the heavenly hosts. All the armies of God, the angels of God, standing there ready to fight with their flaming chariots. Now the chariots of fire theme starts. No. Down they come, able to destroy anyone. There's always the army behind the army. And that's what God wants us to see through this testimony, that if he is for us, no one can be against us. That's our claim. Number three, our confidence. Our conclusion, our claim, and finally our confidence. Our claim is based on on, on the word of God, on on the work of God. And that's what's outlined here in verse 32. Notice what he says. Our confidence is in him. Why? Because he who did not spare his own son. Stop right there. He who did not spare his own son. He who could have spared him, but didn't spare him. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's not the first time Jesus was not spared. Judas didn't spare him in order to get some money. Pilate didn't spare him in order to keep hold of his power. Peter didn't even spare him because of his reputation. The Jews didn't spare him. They took Barabbas instead. Jesus had already experienced many people who would not spare him, though he deserved it. But why is it different this time? Because his own father didn't spare him. When Jesus cried out in the garden, if there is any other way Not once, not twice, but three times pleading with the Father. The Father answers that plea from his only begotten Son with silence. He will not spare him. The Bible talks about those who were not spared. Were not spared. It's a fascinating study. In fact, let me give you four examples. Who did God not spare? It's instructive as we think about it. Number one, God did not spare the non-elect angels. God didn't spare the non-elect angels. When the angels rebelled against God, Lucifer was able to lure one-third of them away, and God did not spare them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, God made no provision for the salvation of angels. God made no provision for the rescue of angels. 
Even though these beings were created perfect, these beings were created powerful, these beings were created beautiful, these beings were created to surround God, glorious in and of themselves, able to sing his praises in his presence, able to see him as it were because of their sinlessness. These glorious beings, a third of them, turn in rebellion and no opportunity was made for them to be saved. They were not spared. Number two, the world wasn't spared in the time of Noah. God didn't spare the world. He drowned it. He spared eight people because they got into the ark and when he closed the door, that was it. Everybody else was not spared. Thirdly, he didn't spare the Jews who were not chosen. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in the coming weeks, Romans 9 through 11, talking about a proper understanding of the Jews and Israel in relationship to God and the new covenant. But let me tell you right now that just because you're a Jew doesn't make you any closer to the kingdom than if you're anybody else. The Jews who are not elect are just as not elect as any other not elect, and the not elect Jews were not spared. We're going to see that in Romans eleven twenty one. So the non elect angels, the world in Noah's time, and the non elect Jews, same word used, same idea, not spared. But the fourth one, and the most important, comes to us here the very Lamb of God was not spared. He let the angels fall, he let the world drown, he let the Jews rebel, and he let his own son die. He didn't spare him, even though he pleaded. But here's where the gospel comes in. This is the great hope for us. God didn't spare his own son so that he could spare us and make us sons. He didn't spare his own son so that he could make us sons. You see, that withholding of rescue was necessary for the full weight of the fury of the wrath of God, not only to not spare his son, but to crush his son so that he could make sons of those he should have crushed. Praise God, he didn't spare him. Because if he did, he couldn't have spared us. The text goes on to say, not only did he not spare him, but he also gave him up. He removed that protection. He withdrew from him. He forsook him on the cross. He abandoned him. He exposed him to the insecurity that he had never known in a moment so that he could pour out the wrath upon him that should have come upon us. And who did he give him up for? Paul says he gave him up for all of us. What does all mean? Does that mean that he gave him up for all humanity? That he gave him up for all people? Is, is this a text that teaches universalism? No. When he says that he gave him up for us all, it's a very specific use of the word all. It's a word that meant all of the pieces seen at once. Everything is complete. All the pieces are in view. All of us who were chosen, all of us who were ordained before the foundation of the world, God the Father gave up his own son for us. The focus here is on the specific individuals that make up the whole. All the individuals chosen by God to make up the mosaic of redemptive history. They are the ones he gave him up for. 
And this has always been his pattern to choose from Abel to Jacob to Abraham to Joshua to Caleb to Rahab to Ruth to the Samaritan woman to the thief on the cross to Saul who became Paul and wrote this letter. And there have been those whom he has chosen, that he has called, that he has justified, and that he has glorified. And so he, began, so he ends by saying, how will he not then graciously give us all things? All things, same words, same idea. Why will he not give us all things, all the things that make up the whole of the promise of glorification? The logic is this, if he gave up Christ, he'll certainly give up everything else. If he gave over his own son, he will certainly give us everything else that he has promised us. All the other things that he says will come to us in that time of glorification. The resurrected body, the new earth, his eternal presence, the perfect joy and peace that we await. All that he gives to the true overcomers as described at the end of the letters that he wrote to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. All of those who are the true overcomers. So this is our conclusion. It's our claim. And it's our confidence. What do we think about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how assured can we be that he will also give us everything else he promised? Now this comes back to the issue of trust. Moses' day was already going badly. And some of the people decided that in response to God's decision to judge them and make them wander in the wilderness until they died, uh, that they would make it up to him and that they would change his mind because now they see he was telling the truth. And so they regathered and they said to Moses, we've changed our mind. We do believe him. We do trust him. Well, we're going to go and we're going to fight. We're going to go and obey him now. We're going to go do what he said. After all, we're God's chosen people. He's for us. He'll defend us. He'll protect us. He'll let us win because we belong to him. We're on the right side. We're on the right team. We wave the right flag. We voted for the right party. We're the right nation. Oh, he's for us. We're going to go do it. We're going to go beat the enemy. You watch. And Moses says, bad plan. God's not with you. God is not for you. They say, oh, you watch. He says, don't do it. Don't go out there presuming that God is on your side. Don't go out there presuming that God is going to fight for you. God has said he will not do it. Take him at his word. But these people did not listen to Moses. And they went out. Even though Moses says in verse 42 and 43, Yahweh is not among you. It didn't matter. They presumed. They went up and they fought and they got slaughtered. Listen, God is not for any nation. God is not for any one group of people. God is not setting apart one nation. There is no Christian nationalism. 
there is only children adopted from every nation. And what separates those who are in his family from those who are not in his family is not the place that you were born, but the fact that you were reborn and that you put your faith and trust in him. That's the calling upon your life this morning if you have yet to do that. You see, the same invitation exists today that has always been echoing through all of redemptive history that if you put your faith in him, he will save you from your sin. He will clothe you in his righteousness. He will pay your debt completely. He will fill you with his spirit and then he will empower you to be preserved until the end when he'll reward you with all the lavish riches that he would pour out upon his son and you will enjoy him and his presence in a new body and on a new earth in the resurrection forever. May no one leave this place today without having settled that in their own heart and mind and put their faith in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth and for the powerful reality that you are the one who, for your own purposes, did not spare your own son, but gave him up so that your enemies could be made sons. It's difficult for us at times to fathom the depth of the reality of this truth, and so I pray that today you would open up our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit to see these marvelous realities for what they are, and that for those who have yet to believe it, that today would be the day when you open up their hearts to receive it knowing that it comes to them only through faith, only in Christ and only by grace. And we pray these things in your great name. Amen.